Well, let's take our Bibles this morning as we continue our study through the book of 1 Thessalonians. Let's turn in our Bibles to chapter 2 as we continue this section that we started last week. We've entitled this, we would call it mini-series, The Marks of a Faithful Shepherd. And so we saw two of those last week, and we will continue on with that this morning. So our text this morning will be verses 5 to 8, but I think we will read uh, from the beginning this morning. Verse 1. Paul writes, as he is superintended by the Holy Spirit, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you as nursing as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working day and night, so As not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. There ends the reading of God's inerrant word this morning. Join with me as we pray before we walk ourselves through this text this morning. Father in heaven, we again praise and thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have given it to us that we might know for sure what you require from us and who you are. And so this morning, again, we pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us the truths that are in this word and that they would, he would impress them on upon our hearts. And we pray that you would give us obedience to what we hear this morning. And Lord, we do pray that you use your word in our, in our hearts as you see fit. And so we pray this morning that you will be glorified through the worship of your people and the conforming of the church to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, I pray in your name. Amen. So as we've been going through this text, it might be helpful again to, to place what we, what's taking place here in Thessalonians in its, in its context. 
And we recognize that as Paul is writing this book, he is writing this on his second missionary journey. He has just come out from the Jerusalem council that took place, and he he has started to go out, as it were, to give the announcements of of what was decreed in in the Jerusalem council to the Gentile churches that he has planted. And so he has gone out on this journey beginning in Acts chapter 15. And so he is again going out to different places and and he's not sure where to go. And eventually he gets a a vision of the man from Macedonia, the Macedonian man, calling him to come to the churches in Macedonia. And so Paul heads out that way and he first begins in the city of Philippi where he begins to minister there and he ministers there until, until again Paul does what he normally does. He gets thrown out of town. And so Paul is, is again beaten, thrown in jail, uh, and then sent on his way. And so opposition is beginning to follow him. And so Paul goes from there and he ends up in Thessalonica, another major city in Macedonia. It is, it is a, a city that is, again, well situated on the coast. It has the major highway that goes through Macedonia that comes to it. And so he begins to plant a church there. And and again, as normally takes place, Paul spends a little bit of time. He goes to the synagogue. We're told he went there for three Sundays. We're not sure, or Sabbaths. We're not sure how long he was there. But eventually the Jews get jealous. They stir up the people and they kick him out of there saying, these are the people who are turning the whole world upside down which could be interpreted our world, <laughs> right? So again, they are, they are upset that Paul is, is, is turning people away from uh, their, their religion and they're, they're losing influence and power. And so Paul and Silas are forced to leave. Uh, they go to Berea, and then Paul ends up by himself in Corinth at this point. Silas will come along later, and Timothy is, will eventually come as well. Now, again, there's opposition to Paul. Uh, they, they want to, they, they, he can't go back to that city. And so Paul is concerned about the church at Thessalonica because he doesn't know what's taking place. And so as we saw in chapter 3, he sends Timothy back to get a report because he wants to know, are they doing okay? They, they were planted amongst, uh, amongst whoa, Amongst much tribulation, we're told, there's much persecution that's taking place. And so Paul is concerned for them that they might might be drifting from the faith or they might might be having a hard time. And so Timothy comes back and he reports to Paul. And he reports how they are doing well and reports of their faith. And so that's what we really have in chapter 1 is Paul in response to Timothy coming back and giving the report of them doing well. Paul bursts out into joy and to praise for, the, for what God is doing in the Thessalonians. How God's work is, how his work of salvation is working and manifesting itself in the lives of the Thessalonians. And so it is clear that as Paul comes then, as he's coming, he's responding now to, to, to Timothy's report. And it would seem that as Paul has left 
Thessalonica that there are those who continue to come after Paul and his ministry. Certainly Paul couldn't go back. That's why he sent Timothy. But there are those now who are, who are left in Thessalonica and there are those who are in Thessalonica who are now trying to undermine the church. They want to get rid of the church. They don't want these people here. And so what is the best strategy to do that? What is the best thing to do is, is ultimately to undermine the leadership. If you want to get rid of a church, you undermine the leadership. And here these people now are beginning to attack Paul and his companions and to start to go after their character and their motives as they served. And that's what's happening in chapter 12. In ch- chapter 12, wow, Thessalonians got long. In chapter 2 is that, that Paul is now starting to make a defense of his ministry and his companion's ministry that took place in Thessalonica. Now Paul isn't necessarily concerned that they have begun to believe these reports, but he certainly wants to, to encourage their faith and to make sure that they carry on. And so they are trying to undermine Paul and his character and his ministry. Now, Paul doesn't come out and identify this opponent. He doesn't come out and give us specifics as to who they are and what exactly they're saying. But it's clear that they are comparing Paul and Silas to the wandering philosophers, especially the cynics, that used to go around from city to city. In other words, we often think, as we said last week, that Paul was the only guy traveling around trying to make disciples. But there was many philosophers who would travel from city to city and they would try to gain influence. They would try to use their oratory to be well known. In fact, they were well known for traveling from city to city, promoting their oratory. Often without any knowledge, they used fancy words and fancy arguments to trick people even though they really had nothing to say. They often used it to, to tickle people's ears to flatter them and to deceive them. They wanted to to get things from them. They wanted money. They wanted power. They wanted influence. They wanted all of these things. And they wanted self-promotion. They were hunger for popularity. They often used their influence to fulfill their sensual desires of their flesh. And so Paul responds in this chapter with a series of, of denials and affirmations this is what they say. This, we deny this. This is who we are. And he does this negative, positive thing through these first few verses of this chapter. And so he, he's already, we've seen two denial, denials and two confirmations as we've gone through this chapter. And so in the beginning there, we saw really boldness in the light of, of boldness and proclamation in light of opposition. In other words, Paul says, we didn't come here and we didn't uh, come here in vain. We suffered and were mistreated, but we got, we got bolder to speak the word of God to you. For our, our, exhorta- our exhortation didn't come from error or impurity, but, why, but by way of deceit. Or by way of deceit. He says, we came proclaiming boldly the word of God. When persecution came, we actually got braver. We didn't get quieter. We actually supernaturally are empowered to give you the gospel. And so we had a supernatural uh, uh, boldness in light of opposition. 
And then Paul said, as he continued on, that for we, um, we didn't come by way of error and impurity. And so the idea was here, he, he had, they had godly motivations. They didn't proclaim the gospel with impure motives. They came with pure motives to please God. They had a godly desire for the glory of God, not for themselves. And so this morning, Paul comes along and he continues on with this positive, negative thing, this, this, this denial and confirmation as he gives us another mark of a faithful shepherd. And we'll see two more of those marks here this morning. We will see that a faithful shepherd is marked by selfless devotion and that a faithful shepherd is marked by an affectionate love. And so he'll give us two more marks of of a faithful shepherd. And as we said last week, that doesn't mean that this isn't for us. Because if if our leaders are to be examples for us, then these are to be the marks of every servant of God, of every single believer, that they too have these marks in their ministry and in their lives. And so we don't, we don't get out of it. We don't get to say, well, that's just for them. It's for each one of us as we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. So he begins and, and he gives us this first mark, or we would say actually the third mark if we're going from the, from the beginning of the passage. He says, a selfless, they were selfless in devotion. So he begins this section and he says... For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. And so this four here, in ver- it points back to verse four. And he's saying, for, for we didn't come with flattering speech, and he says, because, and, and this is an explanation of not pleasing men in verse 4, but God. In other words, we didn't come to try to please men, but to, to please God. And here's an explanation of that. He says, for we did not, we never came with flattering speech. In other words, we didn't come speaking um, and a flattering speech. Now, the idea here is flattering speech is not the idea of, of just saying nice things about you. It's not just about trying to make you feel good about yourselves. Rather, it's, got the, it's not just complimentary or intended to tickle the ears of the hearer. It is rather the smooth-tongued discourse of an orator aimed at making favorable impression in order to gain influence over others for selfish advantage. Said another way, it is speech in which an individual insincerely and deceptively speaks affirming words to others to gain influence over them with selfish objectives in mind. In other words, Paul says, we didn't come this way. We didn't come with flattery of speech trying to dis- purposely deceive you so that you would, you, we could get something from you. And Paul says, it's not that we use flattery speech and we didn't get caught. The idea is here is that we never, ever, not once, ever used it. Not at any time. 
Not even once is the idea. He says, we didn't, we didn't come with flattery, flattery of speech. That was not what we came. In fact, Paul, in other places, talks about how he came the exact opposite, where he was straightforward in his speech, where he didn't try to pull the wool over people's eyes. And then Paul says, as you know, as you know. And again, uh, he, he is saying, this is, this is what you Thessalonians know. This isn't something that I have to tell you. This is something new to you. But this is something that you know by first-hand knowledge, first-hand experience. And Paul is really saying, let the facts stand for themselves. You were there, Thessalonians. You saw me when I came to you. You saw when I was among you. And I didn't come this way. I didn't come, as it were, with a cloak to, to deceive you. He says, Paul says, and you'll notice this, that Paul starts with what? In this section, he starts with, with speech. Do you notice that? He starts with speech. And we must realize that this is the most important thing that we do when we give the gospel. Now, we need to ordain the gospel, right? We need to, to live lives that are in line and obedience to the word of God. But ultimately, your perfect life will save no one, right? There's only been one perfect man that worked the, walked the face of the earth, and he was what? Crucified. In other words, it's not enough for you to live a good life in front of everybody and hope people that people will talk to you or ask you questions why you do the things you do, right? More than likely, they're going to go to their to their Twitter account or their Facebook account and say whatever good thing you did restores their, their faith in mankind rather than looking to the God that, that actually motivated the action. And so Paul says you, that they knew that his words were pure, that there was no inconsistency with, with what he says, that he didn't come with them trying to lie to them, to deceive them, to get things from them. Unfortunately, this problem is just not a problem in, in Paul's day. Where ministers, where, where leaders get up and they lie to their congregation. They tell their congregation what, they peop what people want to hear. They tell them that God loves them the way they are instead of that God loves them but wants to change them into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. They tell them that sin is okay. They smile with big teeth and tell them that everything, that, that God's blessing is upon them and that he will give them if they'll just have enough faith and if they'll just send enough money that God will heal them, he will give them, make them rich. He will reward their faith by giving them more money. And they lie. Now, it's easy for us to kind of step back and we see, we, see these, we see these men often on TV and we see them with big ministries as they, as, they, as they tell lies about who God is and about what his agenda is. But is it possible, is it just possible that we too are guilty of this? 
Is it, is it, is it possible that we, we actually say kind things and we, we try to be nice to people because we're actually afraid to say the truth? And we, we don't want controversy, and so we have a tendency to, to pull back and not, not to tell the truth. And we're more worried about our tone and about how we're coming across than we are about the truths that we are given. Now, that doesn't mean that we're to be rude. That doesn't mean that we just throw all things off and just say whatever we want. But what is our motive when we do that? And and Paul is looking at his motives. We didn't come with this motive to deceive you. And so we too need to be those who are are straight in our speech, who don't try to flatter people to get what we want from them, to fear them. So Paul says, we didn't come like the philosophers. We didn't come to get something from you. We didn't come here to deceive you. We gave you the gospel, the true gospel, and nothing else. Paul gives a, a second part of this denial. He says, not only did we not come with flattering speech, he says, we did not come with the pretext for greed. Pretext means, in, in a sense of a false appearance. It means it has the idea of concealing something. It carries the idea of a cloak, which is intended to hide something, right? So you, you, you grab something, you put it underneath your coat, and then you scurry out of the store. And he says, we didn't come with the pretext. We didn't come with the cloak, a cloak, as it were, for greed. In other words, we didn't, we didn't come hiding the fact that we were coming to you in greed, In other words, it wasn't, our, our greed wasn't hidden by, some, by something, but as we came to you. Greed refers to covetousness or an insatiable desire. Um, the state of desiring, it has the idea of, des, of desiring to have something more than one is due. It's the motivating force for gaining something beyond an acceptable standard. In other words, I want something that's not mine. I want something beyond what is necessary. He's not talking here about desiring to get your wages. That's, that's, you worked for that. But he's saying desiring and having an insatiable desire to have something that's not yours. Paul uses this word in, in Colossians chapter 3 when he talks about the greed of, of idols of idol worship. It's the same word that is used here. And so it's clear that, that the, those who are opposing Paul were accusing him of coming to the church in Philippi and, and that he was coming there to make money off of them, that he was trying to gain wealth for himself. And we know that they had something to point to because we talked about last week that the Philippians had already sent money to Paul twice. And it would be very easy for them to point out that actually, you know what, Paul is receiving money. He is fleecing those people over there. He's, he did such a good job with his flattering speech and, that, and he hid his motive for greed so much that these people got sucked in and they're even sending him money when he's gone. And they're saying, aha, 
Now, Paul says here in verse 9, actually, I work day and night. I work day and night. And you can hear the critics. And, this is, and we see this all the time if you follow politics. And, of course, we don't. But, but if we did, you would, you would see this. And what, 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 what would the skeptics say to this, right? If you're on Paul's side, you're saying, oh, come on. He's working day and night. That can't be possibly true. But if you're a true skeptic, you would say what? Wow, he's good. He's good. He's pretending he's so poor. He works day and night because he's sucking these people in and they're going to give more money, right? Can't you see it? And so here is Paul. They're saying, look at this guy. He is just coming here to fleece the flock. That's what he's doing. He's coming. He is coming here and that's all he wants. He wants gain. Maybe he wants more than money. Maybe he wants influence. Maybe he wants power. But he certainly is coming here to gain from you. And you can hear, you can hear that criticism coming to the church. And Paul says, we're not here. We didn't come by pretext of greed. You know that. And actually he says, um, God is my witness. God is my witness. In other words, he says, guess what? You guys could witness my speech. You can see that. You, you can actually make an, a, 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 a judgment on that yourself. You can see that I was speaking. You heard what I said. But when it comes to motives, Paul appeals to the only one who really knows. And he says, our motives were not for greed. God is my witness. I appeal to God because He's the only one who can read my heart. And again, he refers back to what was said in verses 4 and 5. Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. In other words, when we came speaking the gospel, it's because we had been approved. We had been tested by God, demonstrated to be genuine. He approved us. And we speak not pleasing God, but not pleasing men, but God who what? Examines our hearts. In other words, Paul says, God examines our heart and I appeal to his court, the only court that matters, that our motives were not impure. And so Paul again says, God is my witness. We, we didn't come to you in greed. God can attest to that. We didn't come to take your money. We didn't come to get take advantage of you. We didn't come to fleece the fox. We were not trying to gain wealth. And then Paul makes a third denial to a third accusation. And it's obviously that they had made the accusation that they were seeking glory from men. They were seeking glory from men. And he says, we did not come seeking glory. That was not our motivation. When we came to you, that was not the driving force behind our missionary work among you. And now Paul goes again to his motives. We, we were not seeking or motivated by the desire to have glory from men. Glory refers to the recognition of someone's status or performance, which results in fame, honor, esteem, prestige for that individual. And so Paul says, we didn't come seeking prestige. We didn't come seeking honor and glory so that you would all say, bravo, you're so great. Encore, speak again. That was not Paul's motivation. He wasn't looking for the, for the, res, uh, 
their recognition and glory. Now certainly that was a characteristic of false teachers who prided, who often came focusing on winning the respect of the hearers. They wanted to be loved by their audience. They wanted their audience to yell bravo and encore. In a society where personal reputation was of great importance, many philosophers focused on this. And Paul says, I didn't come this way. I didn't come for you to make much about me. Now, Paul isn't saying that he didn't receive some glory and honor because he did. It's obvious that places where he went, the gospel was received and that the people loved Paul and that there was often times where he was their beloved apostle. And rightfully so. But Paul says, that was not our purpose. That was not our aim in coming to you. We didn't come to you for that purpose. In fact, he, he gives a similar idea in 2 Corinthians 4.2. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame. Not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That's a summary of those den- the denials that he's made in here. Paul says, I'm not here to take advantage, to get gain for myself. I've renounced those things. So Paul says, I, 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 I didn't come for glory. He says, either from you or from others. He says, I'm not, I'm not interested in receiving glory or honor or respect from the, the Thessalonian pagans, not from the Jewish synagogue, not from the rich leading citizens, not even from my own converts. That's not where I am. And, he's, and, and again, this stands in cart, uh, stark contrast with the philosophers of the day, and even a Christian workers today who often reject the honors from outside the church but would loathe to lose the, the adulation of those inside. Though I would have to say in this day and age, we have a large group of, quote, Christian scholars who are trying to somehow find respect in the world. And in find, trying to find respect from the world, they are compromising the word of God and its truth. Paul says, I wasn't here to get adulation. I wasn't here for people to say, well done. I wasn't here for it to be, to be popular. I didn't want it neither from you or for others. Now Paul says, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority... Literally, it says, being able to be in weight as apostles of Christ. It's an idiomatic expression meant to, meaning to insist upon one's importance or to make claims of great importance. A saying in, in English, a comparable idiom, is to throw one weight, one's weight around. And Paul says, as apostles, and I think he uses it in a broader sense here because he's speaking of Silas and Timothy who are not te- in the technical sense apostles like the 12. He says, we, we came as messengers of Christ. In other words, we represent, we're we are possessed by Christ. He possesses us. We come with his authority. We speak for him. And guess what? There is honor that goes with that. 
There is actually an honor that goes with that. But guess what? We chose not, we chose not to assert that authority. We chose not, as it were, to, to demand the respect that we actually deserved. We have a dignity that is associated with the office that we hold, but we chose not to place that on top of you. We didn't throw our authority around. We didn't say, look at, we started this church, you listen to me, right? I'm a man of God, you got to follow me. He, they didn't do that. They simply came humbly. And so Paul says, we didn't come in this selfish way. We didn't come in a way that would ultimately, for us, using these methods in order to get flattered, in order to get rich, in order to receive the accolades of men. He says, but instead, we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing, a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Now, as we come to this verse, I, I, I'll be honest with you that there is a textual issue in this verse that scholars are still debating, and, and there are good men who follow on both sides of this issue. Um, and as I have studied and as I have looked at it, I would go with what the New American Standard says. And, and most modern translations, that this word here is we prove to be gentle among you. Now, there are some manuscript evidence, and there are those who believe that this word should be infants. And the difference between these two words is one letter, and it would be very easy if you've seen a, a Greek manuscript to either add or subtract, and it would be very easy to uh, get confused on this issue. But I would understand, at least at this point in my life, that this, is, this word is best translated here as gentle. And so Paul says, in, in, instead of being selfish and self-centered and trying to take advantage of you, but in contrast to that, we prove to be gentle among you. In other words, it, it, literally, we became Gentile in your midst. He became in manner, he became in manner that was manifested on the outside what was on the inside of him. In other words, what was inside of him became evident as he was with them. He became gentle with them. He, it means, uh, gentle means placid, gentile, mild, easy, compliant. It was often used of, of a teacher with, or parents towards their children to be gentle as they taught. It was also used to describe medicines as soothing and assaging. And so Paul says, we came to you, we came to you, and we became gentle. And then he really defines what it means to be gentle with the next phrase. He says, as what? <clears throat> but we prove to be gentle among you, what? As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. And he says, we cared for you, at, what, as a mother cares for her, a nursing mother cares for her children. 
Now notice this, he, he says not, some people have said, well, this is speaking about a wet nurse who, who comes in and, and feeds the child. But he says, this is what? Her own child, her own child. And she is nursing her own child. In other words, she is feeding her child. She is taking care of her child. And he says, and so we look and we say, well, how does a nursing mother take care of her child? Well, we do know this. You need to be gentle, right? It's small. It's fragile. But we also know that if, and, and I say this, and maybe this is the difference between men and men, and may, uh, men and women, and maybe I'm, I'm just a bad man. But you often see a baby, and the ladies are like, Wow, that's, that's, whoa, so cute, right? And the baby's sitting there going, and, and, and really adds nothing to your life. And, and in fact, if, 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 if I remember right, and, and having little ones, every experience with that child tends to be on, on that child's schedule, and generally it's not a, it's not a pleasant experience, right? <laughs> Because you are, it's crying and there's no off button. You're feeding it, right? Because it can't feed itself. You're changing its diapers. That's fun. It spits up on your new clothes, right? And so when you look at a nursing mother, you see how she deals with her child. She's gentle. She's caring. And she is self-sacrificing all the time. She's the one who gets up in the middle of the night, right? The baby cries, dad kicks mom, right? <laughs> Off she goes, right? And he says, this is the way that it, it is. He says, we came to you as ministers of the gospel, and instead of taking advantage of you, instead of trying to take stuff from you, instead of trying to deceive you and, and take all your stuff, we actually were like a mother who had a, a small child. We nurtured you. We cared for you. We self-sacrificed for you. Far from taking you, fleecing you, far from taking advantage of you, we actually came to you for your good. And we were self-sacrificial with you. Paul uses this several times, this idea of coming as a nursing mother. And he says, he says this, he, as a what? He says, the word here is, um, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own child. The word tender here means to, to heat, to soften by heat, then to keep warm as a bird covering their young with feathers. And here he says, here's the idea of an infant being kept warm by its mother in her arms. It's a vivid picture, an illustration, of the kind of personal care that the Thessalonians received from Paul. Paul was no paid surrogate mother or a modern style or high, hired daycare worker. He treated them as if they were his own child and exhibited the same feelings as a nursing mother when he cared for the Thessalonian spiritual need. This picture is usually foreign to all leaders outside the true church of Jesus Christ. Because to be caring, 
to be gentle is seen or to appear sentimental is weak and unproductive. The standard of worldly leadership is to accomplish the leader's desires through his what? People. Paul says that's not what we came to do. We didn't come to accomplish our desires through you by manipulating you and taking advantage of you. We came to make sure that God's work was done through you. And so he says, we came to give you nourishment spiritually for your good, that God might work through you, not for our great advantage. So the question becomes, as we see Paul here in his selfless devotion to the Thessalonians, is that who we are? Is that who we are? Who are we serving? What are we serving for? When we, think of our mini- when we think of ministry and we think of our life, is it marked by being served or by serving? Would we serve if there was no one around? Would we serve if, if all that we did was something in a room where no one went into, but it was necessary, but nobody knew would we be willing to serve? Or do we need the applause of others? Do we need some advantage? Do we want reputation? Do we want the praises of men? Do we serve others for the glory of God? Is our service marked by self-sacrifice? Is our service marked by self-sacrifice? Paul says, I was selfless in my devotion. I took care of them gently. I served them. So the question is, are we like Paul? Are we those who are selfless in our devotion to the spiritual welfare of others? We're called to be. So, a faithful shepherd is marked by selfless devotion, but that's not all. Another mark of a faithful shepherd is his affectionate love. He's marked by a supernatural love for those whom he serves. And so again, Paul is is giving this defense for himself and and to affirm the integrity of his ministry to strengthen the Thessalonians' faith. And he begins to describe the intensity of desire and longing for the believers in Thessalonica. He says, Having so fond an affection for you, we are well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our lives, because you have become very dear to us. And he says, Having so fond an affection, and again, there's a constant nature of affection here. To the, new, that, to the new believers. He says, we, we became fond of you and we're still fond of you. 
means to have a, a, a strong passion and earnestly desire, is used in scripture and indicates the yearning love of a mother for his children, for her children. He says, we have an affection for you like, like a mother has for her child. It's a deep, compelling love. It's, it's used on, it was used, this word was used on inscriptions of describing the parent's sad yearning for their dead child. And it seems to indicate a deep affection, a great attraction, or when parents want to describe their sad longing for a soon departed child. And he says, we had this strong desire, this warm affection. He says, this is what the missionaries had for the spiritual babies at Thessalonica. So we see Paul's heart and as, as it is laid bare in these verses, as he continues on with this figure of, of a nursing mother, and he describes his love for the Thessalonians as a love of a parent for a child. And he says, we were well pleased, because of this, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but our own lives. And Paul says, because we ha and my companions had a strong affection for the Thessalonians, they were well pleased to impart the gospel to them. Well pleased means to take pleasure in. Paul is saying that he had took pleasure in imparting the gospel to them. This word, to impart the gospel. And so he says, we, we wanted to impart the gospel. It's, it's more than just giving. The idea, it's an intensified form of ginomai. It has the idea of, of sharing, imparting what, is, what one has, what, what is one owned. But the idea is, I'm giving you something. It's more than a gift. It's something that I desire to share with you, but it's also something that, that I also have a part in remaining of. In other words, I'm giving you the gospel. That doesn't mean I lose the gospel, but I'm giving you something that's so dear to me, but I also have a part of it and I still, have, I still remains with me. And so he says, I, I, we gave to you the gospel of God. This is so, the source and the origin of the gospel is in God. It was a priceless treasure that would enrich the Thessalonians for time and eternity. And he says, we were willing to share this treasure as an expression of genuine love. The sharing of the saving gospel with others was a reason for their call and function as Christ's apostles. And so he says, I, I give this to you. I give this to you. It's, I, I still have a part of it, but I impart it to you. I give it to you because it's a value. And so they, they actually shared the best possession that they had. This is the best thing that they had. They gave them the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the best thing that you can give to people. It doesn't, it, this, is, this is essential. This is bedrock. This is what must be given to them. And so the, Paul says, far from coming to take something from you, we came to share with you our best possession is what he's saying. I'm giving you the best possession we had. We didn't come to get from you. We came to give to you and we gave, came to give to you our best. Barnes says, to be willing to communicate the knowledge of the gospel was in itself a strong proof of love even if it were attended by no self-denial or hazard in doing. 
a decided love for a human man when he will tell him of the way of salvation and urge him to accept of it. We show strong interest for the one who is in danger when we tell him of the way of escape or for the one who is sick when we tell him of a medicine that will restore him. But we manifest a much higher love when we tell a lost and ruined sinner the way which he may be saved. There is no method in which we can show so strong an interest in our fellow man and so much true benevolence for them as to go to them and tell them of the way which they may be rescued from everlasting ruin. And so Paul says, we shared this love for you so much that we shared our best possession with you, the gospel. But Paul doesn't end there. He says, but also, but also. And, and, and again, it's not, it, the idea is not just, not just that we gave you the gospel, but also we shared our own lives with them. Our, in other words, we, we sh- our, our affection caused us not only to share the gospel, but to share our lives. And so he says, we came and to share our lives. And the word here is literally suke, which is the idea for soul. We came to share our soul. Literally, they gave up their souls, their real inner beings. And so he says, it's, it, it, it's not so much the idea here that they came to give up their lives for them. They didn't come there and say, we're, we're coming here to be martyrs for you. We're not coming up here to, to die for you. But he says, we came here actually to share our lives. In other words, it's not the idea of life as opposed to death, but what constitutes life, time, and energy, and health. In other words, we came here to be at your disposal without reservation. We gave to you in every way that we could. Our lives were invested in yours. And in many ways, this is more difficult than the first one, right? Because the first one you can just give. You can just spew it out there. You don't even have to care for anybody. But here is much more difficult. And in many ways, it would have been easier to die for them than it is to actually live for them. Often we struggle. It's easy on the big moments and we say, oh yeah, I'll die. But when it comes to actually every day, moment by moment, pouring your life into others, it's difficult. They could share that gospel in any, at any way, in any way, but this involved utter self-denial, spending and being spent in the interest of others. And Paul said, that's the way we came. We weren't taking from you. We came to be spent on your behalf. And so it was a costly minister, ministry. It was a ministry that wasn't superficial or partial. It wasn't professional. It was shepherds being in the lives of their people. Love induced this costly ministry. It is what was the cause of it. He writes, because you became very dear to us. This marks the reason for imparting the gospel in their lives, because they had become dear to us. This word dear here is, is, is the word agapitas. It is related to the word agape. But this is the word that is used for beloved in scripture. 
And he says, you had become, in other words, there was a point in time where you became dear to us. When we gave you the gospel and the Lord worked in your heart, you responded to that gospel and you became what? Beloved to us. Because you were now what? In the beloved. You were now saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. You were now our brother and sister in Christ. And he said, if Jesus Christ died for you, if God sent his son to pay the price for your sin and you have believed in him and he was willing to die for you, how much more should we be willing to what? Invest in others. And Paul said, this is what drove us. This is what you became to us. You were, you were beloved. You're beloved by God, as he says in 1 Thessalonians 1.4. Knowing brethren, beloved by God is choice of you. But now guess what? We love you too because you're beloved by God. Therefore, we love you. And so God had produced in their hearts a love for the Thessalonian believers. And as we said, read in 1 John, this is the natural response for those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ is to what? Love their brethren. And he says, you became dear to us. The hearts of all the righteous spiritual leaders have, a, have been supernaturally given the same type of affection for their people, even as he, he had his companions had for those who were Christ's. In other words, spiritual leaders supernaturally are given this love for their people. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak with the tongues of men and angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy and gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gifts of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And so Paul says, I, we have this supernatural affection for you. This is why we give you the gospel. This is why we poured our lives into you. It wasn't to get. It was out of love. So a faithful shepherd is marked by an affection for those he serves. One pastor said, I would love the ministry if it weren't for the people. Right? That's not the heart of a faithful shepherd. That's not someone who loves, loves the flock. That's someone who likes to study and preach. And so we are called then ourselves to serve others out of love. So the question is, as we serve in the church and as we serve one another, do we actually love the ones that we serve? Or do we see them as a nuisance and, and, and something of a duty? Do I see ministry as a duty? Do I see what I do in the church as one of those check marks in a box that I do? Yep, I've done my thing, so I'm done. Do I look for an opportunity to share my life? Do I look for a, an opportunity to share my soul where I might invest in others? Do I look for an opportunity where I can serve others and I get nothing back? Am I willing to be impoverished for others? Or must I receive something back? 
Are you willing to be impoverished for the spiritual well-being of others? David Brainerd, as he was dying from tuberculosis, he was a, a missionary to North American Indians. And as he was dying, he wrote this, and he expresses this idea very well. All my desire was for the conversion of the heathen. I cared not where or how I lived or what hardships I went through so that I could but gain souls to Christ. I declare now that I am dying. I would not have spent my life otherwise. And the question is, are, are we the same? Are we those who want to impart our lives in the service of the gospel and the service of God's church? Are we willing to be poured out, as Paul said, like a drink offering? Or must we receive something back? I pray that we will be. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word and we thank you for this word from, from Paul that you have inspired through the Holy Spirit. And I would pray that you would make us a church that is filled with people who are selfless in their devotion, who are self-sacrificing in what they do. And we would pray that you would make us a church that is filled with people who have a supernatural love because they first love you and that you are producing that love in their hearts to love one another. And so I pray that you would mark us being a church who serves one another and loves one another that does not see service to one another as a chore, but as delight, as we, as we serve the beloved. I pray that you would make this our heart cry in your name. Amen.